All right. Thanks, Peter. Thanks, Ben. Good morning, guys. Welcome to our church. Welcome to Hiawatha. My name's Chris. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, Spence said, welcome to all of you, uh, wherever you're at, but if you're, especially if you're brand new to our church, want to extend a special welcome to you guys. Thanks for joining us today uh, for one of, our, one of our gatherings. Welcome back, Spence, by the way, too, and Amy. Great to have you guys back here. We've missed you deeply. So I said first service, uh, my, I feel like my right arm's kind of been reattached so I can function uh, a little more now. And, um, but no, seriously, we love you guys, but it, it is, there's just truth, right? And when part of you is missing, part of your church is missing, there's just that, not as much health, right? So we, we feel, the, um, feel that now having you guys back. So we missed you, missed you greatly. I feel like I saw you guys a lot this summer, so I, I was spoiled, but um, probably more than, more than uh, the rest of the crew here, though. So anyway, um, Welcome, though, guys, to our church. Uh, my name's Chris, but I didn't mention that. One of the pastors here. We hope you guys can make our uh, 15th birthday party right after this, which is just like two blocks this way, kind of kitty corner. Uh, you could be brand new to our church. We still hope you can come. You don't have to, like, been a part of our church for a while, nor do you have to have brought something, so don't worry about that either. Please just come. There should be plenty of food, and we'd love to, to just meet you, so um, please join us after that. I think we'll throw a slide up later, too, so we don't forget. Um, Last week on 1 Timothy, so if you're just joining us, uh, for maybe for the first time today, we have been in a series in 1 Timothy um, for the summer. So today is the last day, we're in chapter 6, verses 17 to 21. Uh, this is, if you remember, this is a, um, what we call a pastoral letter. The Apostle Paul wrote it to a protege of sorts uh, named Timothy. He was a young pastor in training, staying behind in the city of Ephesus to pastor a church there. So a lot of the, these types of books in the, the New Testament have to do with pastoring, and the church. What is the church? Uh, we've been saying throughout this series and just seeing in the Bible how uh, God's church, the, the way we gather, how we think about Christian life and um, maybe the role of a pastor, many things like that, what the gospel is, obviously. Those things aren't arbitrary. They have boundaries to them, even though there might be some gray space in there, some uh, room to wobble and to differ from like the church down the block or a church, you know, meeting underground in central China. Uh, uh, or something like that, there is still boundaries, but the, the book, the Bible talks about those, but then kind of invites us into that space of diversity and freedom in the gospel too. So uh, there's been so many points to, to why we're doing this series. It'd probably take too long to go over all of them, but hope it's been a learnful time for you guys if you've been here for even some of it. We always hope it's learnful, but we especially hope that you've heard the voice of God call out to you afresh through the pages of 1 Timothy, even if you pastor or not. Uh, and again, that's been a big point here is to see that this is for pastors, but it's for the whole church because Jesus is our true pastor. And so um, it, even if you're not in the role of pastor, that there's still, you know, it should be a vested interest in knowing what it is, but also to see that, wow, this, that those characteristics are like Jesus, like, like my Savior, like what he was like when he saved me and what he's like every day to me and things like that. So um, that'll even spill into today. We'll, we'll end the series with saying kind of the same thing, actually, but... Um, Guard the deposit, that's a direct quote from, from verse 20. I'll, I'll come back to that. The deposit is just the, the deposit of the gospel, how God deposited or sort of gave us the, the, the good news of his son uh, into the world and into our churches and, and into our soul. And pastors are kind of tasked with uh, the call to guard it. And we'll, we'll talk about what that means later. Let's read this whole passage, though, verse 17 and following all the way through 21. Um, again, the last five verses of the book. Paul says, as for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, and to be generous and ready to share. 
thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge, for by professing it some have swerved from the faith. Grace be with you. All right, so we're going to go basically kind of look at this uh, paragraph to paragraph here. So I'm kind of in two big chunks. The first is, we'll start with verse 17. And basically, um, before he fully signs off, he just has a word for the wealthy, a word for the rich. So verse 17 starts with, as for the rich, this is how, and remember, Paul, Paul is uh, kind of a pastor himself as an apostle, but saying this to a pastor, um, he's saying, to the rich in your church, this is how to pastor them. Uh, this obviously implies Timothy is pastoring wealthy people, or this wouldn't even be here, right? But Paul wanted to teach him as a pastor how to, how to encourage and exhort people with a lot of money. Uh, most pastors throughout history have pastored the rich. Um, you know, at least some people in their churches have, have been rich, even if they're only relatively rich to others in their particular context. So I'm not going to delve too deep into that, but just, you know, understand that um, even if we like, feel like we're kind of poor, we might be very rich, right, compared to other people in different parts of the world, but that's not really the point. Um, the point is there's at least rel- relative wealth in basically every church that's ever, ever existed. So, so his instruction, though, is to charge them not to be prideful, nor to set their hope on the uncertainty of riches, because it's a shaky ground, right? It's, it's here today, gone tomorrow sometimes, uh, but on God. So hope in him. They are to do good. They are to be rich in good works and to be generous with their money, maybe with other parts of their like, life as well, and then ready to share what they have with other people, especially inside their church family, their church, um, their church home. So one thing you might notice uh, right off the bat here is that he doesn't ask, the, this, is, uh, this is actually a big theme too elsewhere in the Bible. You might be aware of this. Um, so the Proverbs speak to this, others of Paul's letters, but um, notice right off the bat, he doesn't ask that the rich become poor necessarily, but that they live generous lives with what they have been given. So that's a key part we'll come back to, but live generously with what you've been given. That the idea that God gives us our stuff in life too, no matter how hard we feel like we work for it, uh, it's ultimately from him. And, and especially that their hearts remain full of faith. I think that that's his ultimate concern is that the whole church, obviously, but the wealthy among the church remain steadfast and that they believe in Jesus all their days, that their money wouldn't be a thing to trip them up and stop them from that, but that they would stay on, on the path of Christ all the way to the end. But that's one thing about Christianity that we, we've touched on some in this letter and talked about a lot over the years in as much as the Bible does, and that is Christianity is, isn't a, a, very, very, like a very narrowly defined way of life as much as it's about an event. The, the event of Jesus' death and resurrection that saves us from our sins. Uh, this probably goes without saying, right, but if you're a Christian, like if someone asks you and they weren't Christians yet, they asked you, like, what is Christianity? Just, like, I have no idea, just tell me what it is. Like, you probably wouldn't start with some, like, uh, way of life explanation, right? Uh, if you do, that'd be wrong. Like, don't do that. Um, you talk about the events of Christ. You talk about who Christ is, what he did, and uh, that, that being something outside of us or objective to us, right? And because that gospel is outside of us and transcends culture and time, and again, kind of transcends the particulars 
of a lot of our lives, even amidst local church uh, communities like this, uh, it, it creates a type of diversity in the church that otherwise, otherwise wouldn't be there. So in other words, there are rich Christians and there are poor Christians and there are middle-class Christians usually always in the same church. It's always going to be the same. There always have been that and there always will be because Christianity isn't about class or having or not having a certain amount of money, but it, it's ultimately about Jesus and about being rich spiritually, we might say. As he himself, Jesus himself says uh, multiple places in the, in the New Testament, being rich spiritually, having wealth in his grace, that the riches of his grace, Ephesians 1 uh, talks about, the riches of the grace of God being poured out upon us. That's what true wealth ultimately is, hope of eternal life, things like that. So although Paul is on one level concerned about what the rich do with their money, that they don't hoard it, but share it with others. He's especially concerned with their hearts, that money wouldn't reorient their heart towards their stuff, that they wouldn't idolize it or worship it, but they, and that they wouldn't trust in it or set their hopes on it, but, but instead on God. And this is something that goes back to the first part of chapter 6, if you were here for that, where it talks about the love of money being this big threat uh, in the Ephesian church, and of course it, could, it, it is in our church too, any, any church uh, but the danger, the danger with wealth is not so much the wealth. It's not being wealthy in and of itself necessarily, but trusting in the wealth. Having the wealth maybe reshape our view of self. That maybe when we have a lot of money, maybe we think, maybe I'm not that needy after all. Like the Bible and my Christian friend and my pastor says I'm needy, but I don't feel that. And you start to believe it less. And, and when you start to believe that you're not that needy, uh, that starts to reshape how you view Jesus and how you view the essence of Christianity, and it becomes this slow kind of eroding cancer uh, in your soul that, that can lead you away from him. Now, lots of things can do that, of course, not just money, uh, but that's what we're talking about here, right? And that's the danger is not the money, but the trust in it and how it reshapes the view of self into something that's not actually, not actually true. Actually, Jesus himself says, he, in Mark 2, one of the first things actually he says in his ministry is that I came for the needy, not the self-sufficient. Or I came for the healthy, not the sick. They are a type of person that Jesus did not come into the world for. Which is kind of interesting, isn't it? That he, he did not come for people who think they're good. He didn't come into the world to think that for, for people who think they're okay, that they're morally upright ultimately, or at the, at the core that they're not evil. Like he didn't come for, not that he doesn't love them and, and seek to shift that, their perspective, but he came for all in one sense, but in another sense, he didn't come for those types. He came for the sick. He came for the dying. He came for people who believe that at the core they are wicked, that they're sons and daughters of the devil, and that they have no hope whatsoever of making God happy based on what they do with the works of their hands. If you believe that, and this is, this is what you see throughout the narratives of the Bible, the Gospels, the teachings of the rest of the New Testament, that this is, if there was a precondition to being saved, that would probably be it. Like, we have to have that perspective or we will never, ever, ever reach out for the hand of Christ uh, and be pulled up from, from our graves. So maybe that's one, like, final pair of dots we can kind of connect here before moving on. And I kind of alluded to it earlier, but um, to go back to the idea of wealth and how that sort of works itself out in the church, like the more we understand something as given, 
and not earned, the more we are inclined to share it. The more we understand something is given to us and not worked for and earned, the more we're probably inclined to, to share it in the end. Um, this, is, this is maybe why you may have heard that a number of studies on how the poor tend to give more than the rich to charity um, or how money given to a beggar is often shared with other beggars. Um, this is why they know it's given. And, and it's not always that way. Obviously, it's not this perfect, um, you know, thing. But it, it's, this is why we see stuff like that play out experientially in the world. The more you think that you've worked for something, the more you'll probably clench, clench it with your fists and not want to give it away because you've worked for that. Uh, it's kind of the same with the gospel too. We'd say the more you think that you're saved based on what you do, like if you think you've earned your salvation, the less you'll probably share it with other people. Uh, and I don't mean that evangelistically alone necessarily. I mean that like in the church, like the less you'll share your life, the, the less you'll want to pour into other people and build them up. In the faith, like Paul says, I, I haven't just given you the gospel to a different church. He says this, um, the gospel, I've given you my very self, like my very, my very life, just like Jesus gives his very life to us, right? Uh, but the less will probably do that. Again, it's not going to be a one-to-one all the time, but there is a generality to that. And I think the more we understand then salvation is given, wealth is given, circumstances as given, not earned, the more we tend to think less about them and cling to them. So, so I would say then, actually, this is a little bit of a bunny, a little bit of a, um, yeah, I guess bunny trail, but legalism then, so this idea that we are saved or stay saved by obedience or stay saved by keeping the commandments of God, that is a threat to evangelism. Uh, the, the more we operate by that worldview or by that false reading of the, the, the teaching of the Bible, the, the less we'll probably share our faith with other people. Uh, it's also a threat to generosity. It's also a threat to community and to love. Uh, right, I mean, right down the list. But, but grace heals. Grace heals these things. It opens our hands up uh, just like Christ uh, does, does to us on the cross. So, um, and so that will we'll turn next. So this is the first piece here. Um, and then uh, we're going to shift perspectives a little bit, talk over some of the same verses, but talk about really like who is the true rich man uh, in the passage and, and shift this diamond in the light just a little bit. And if you remember how we started the series and really how basically we've been introducing every sermon all summer is by saying this book is for all of us, pastor or not, because, precisely because, really only because, it's a book about Jesus, ultimately. Like if it wasn't, if you believed it, the, the book on like a human level or like a, a you know, like a physical kind of face value book. We couldn't actually say that, right? Like you'd say, if I'm not a pastor or I'm not going to be, um, I don't probably have to read this book much. Um, but that's not, I don't think, the point or what we're saying. The point is Christ is our pastor. The point is Jesus is, calls himself the chief overseer or bishop or pastor of our souls. And if that's the case, then really he's in these narratives. He's in these teachings. He's even in the imperatives, uh, the commands themselves. And so, so I would say then with that idea in place that this particular passage is for all of us, rich or poor. Some of you are wealthy, some of you are not. Some of you are right smack dab in the middle. Um, but this, this particular passage is for all of us, rich or poor, because ultimately it's about Jesus, who is the true rich man, as the Bible teaches, who was, quote, rich in good works towards us and who was generous and ready to share salvation in his very self with us sinners. So he becomes the shape by which um, 
we heed the instructions here. Uh, a couple places you see this, Galatians 1, where it says Jesus Christ gave himself for our sins to, to rescue us up from the present evil age. Hebrews 3, we have come to share in Christ because he shared himself with us. Uh, and then maybe the, the kind of the granddaddy verse of them all, really, in the New Testament when it comes to understanding this concept in relation to Jesus. Uh, so physical money, in, maybe in the hands of some Christians, in relation to what the Christian gospel is, would be 2 Corinthians 8 9. It's most clear here, where the same author, Paul, says to a different church, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus, and, and he explains what the grace is, that, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so you through his poverty might become rich. And this is not just talking about the fact that Jesus was homeless. Uh, it's talking about his death. He ultimately became poor by suffering. He became, though he was wealthy, the son of God, he came into the world becoming like us and kind of condescending himself. So in one sense, that, that describes his poverty, but it's more than that. The rich became poor at the cross, ultimately. Uh, God became needy on the cross. God took on pain. God's son lost things there. He was less wealthy uh, on the cross. So that through that, through his poverty, this is why we know it's the cross, because we don't say through his homelessness we become well. It's through his po impoverished death that we become well. Through his suffering, through his cross, through his crucifixion, and how that is an impoverished idea that we become spiritually rich. And, and this then, so there's two ways to look at this, especially the last verse here. Um, I'm kind of going back to today's passage when I say this, that this, this verse is, this idea is the gospel that the rich on one hand embody with their generosity, with their wealth, but on the other hand, as you see, it's, it's a gospel that surpasses and stands apart from any act of human piety. It, it's both at the same time. You know, Paul's saying, that's the true place that the wealthy became a little bit more poor for the sake of other poor people. They might become rich. That's the true place it happened. So wealthy people, demonstrate that. Put it on display with your loving, sharing, generous actions towards other Christians and outside the church as well, but especially towards other Christians inside the church. That's, that's the, um, that is the, the command or the imperative or the, the motivational side of this. But on, on another side of it, this is also a gospel that stands completely apart from that and has nothing to do with you whatsoever, but alone with Christ. You see, he's not inviting us into this so much as saying it's for you. Not something I'm doing as an example for you, but as a gift. I'm giving myself away, he says it, right, in Galatians 1. Not living in a way for you to copy perfectly, but I'm giving my very body away for your sins. And so as kind of as a sidebar here, uh, as I know a lot of you are new to Christian theology, I, I, this is kind of just a teaching moment thing, but I'd say this is a very important part of reading your Bible and reading it rightly and understanding Christian theology is a lot of times in these parts of the Bible, you have both those things happening simultaneously where you have a call to maybe do something or think a certain way or embody the gospel in a certain way. There's a motivational side to it. But then right at the exact same time, you kind of twist the diamond in the light a bit and you realize this has nothing to do with me at the same time. And that's good news. Like there's, there's 
a better enactor of this idea, and it's not me. There's a better rich man, a, a, a more perfect fulfillment of this notion and of this, of this theological idea. And, and again, this, this is why we know, we know that Christianity is not about becoming poor. I mean, speaking of us again for a second. We know it's not about people becoming poor physically because Jesus became poor for us. Uh, you notice the difference here when it says in 1, Corinthians, or 1 Timothy 6, wealthy, wealthy people just be generous with what you have. But in 2 Corinthians 8, it says that the wealthy Jesus became poor. That's like a higher level. And so we know Christianity is not about becoming poor because the core of Christianity is about Jesus doing that for us. He became poor for us. To say that Christians also had to become poor in every way, in the exact same way, as Jesus or maybe as each other would be to say that Jesus' death wasn't enough. It wasn't sufficient, that it was just a moral example to follow, but more had to be done. That's what it would say. But instead, we know this is not true. Instead, we, we affirm Jesus was the rich man. We gave it all away for us. And so, although we can and should image that with our generosity towards each other, we can't replace it or add to it in any way on the other side of the coin. It's very important to understand that. Um, if you remember back in, in chapter 4 as well, this is why Paul said the false teaching in the church was saying that we needed to abstain from things and harm ourselves religiously and take up kind of a monastic, self-denying lifestyle in order to make God happy. And, and in today's passage, he says, God provides us with, quote, everything to enjoy. Uh, it's the same kind of language where, you know, Paul's saying the false teaching in the church actually is from Jesus affirmers, people that believe in Jesus but, and what he did for us, but they're also saying, but that's not enough, though. It's kind of a, I call this, yeah, but theology. When you hold out the gospel and people look at it and say, yeah, but, I mean, there's also more, right? Like, yeah, but there's, I mean, we all know there's something else to do, right? It's kind of like, yeah, but theology. That's what was circulating. It was people saying, yeah, but it's also important to live an ascetic lifestyle, to fast. It's better not to get married because um, we know sex is, a, is kind of this um, sort of a, it, it's, it's a, what's the word? Not divulsion, but it's, it's going too much into uh, pleasure. And we know that it's, it's, it, it demonstrates our commitment to God more to abstain from pleasure, doesn't it? These kind of things, right? You guys have probably heard some notion of this before, right, in your life, that it makes God happy when you keep yourself from pleasure, for him, when you do something for him, when you cut yourself, harm yourself, abstain from something, don't receive the good gifts that he wants you to get to receive every day. And when we, when we operate that way, we, we don't we might look more spiritual. I mean, um, whether we've been that, like I've had big seasons of that in my life where I've done that. I've also had big seasons in my life where I've been around people like that. And the sometimes unintended message in that is that Christ isn't sufficient. He's, he's not enough. And so, whereas Christianity might say you're primarily a receiver, not an abstainer, um, other versions might say something, something else. And so, as we receive Jesus as a gift, we receive all things. And, but, but it's interesting, uh, interesting, again, like I'd say, because Jesus is the crux, this kind of flips the coin around one more time, because Jesus is the crux, 
not exactly how we apply all of these ideas like practically to our life. It also creates diversity in the church. And I mentioned this before, but um, you know, in a church like ours, some eat everything put before them and some are vegan, you know, and that's, that's great. I mean, there's not many places in the world where that can happen, like in, in a community where there's no judgment and people don't really care or, or shouldn't, right? Um, if someone eats McDonald's every day, you know, and there's a vegan and they're sitting right next to each other, like the vegan's going to look at the McDonald's person and say, you're insane, you're killing yourself. And the McDonald's person is going to say, you're crazy yourself. Why are you eating the, only like two foods? You know, and, but at the end of the day, they don't care because Christianity is not about what you eat. Some of you are dieting, some of you are not. Some of you exercise, some of you don't. Some of you are rich, some of you are poor. If Christianity is not about those things, it doesn't matter. We can have unity amidst the diversity there, right? This goes into all kinds of things, by the way. It's politics, goes into that. Um, it actually, it affects our consciences different. We have different lines as Christians by which we determine what movies or books or vacations or sports or other forms of art that we embrace or reject. If you didn't know that, you will be different from Christians at times. You probably all know this, but you'll be different. But again, because those things don't determine the ultimate, we, we, have, um, we, have someone else at the, and we have someone else at the center, namely Christ. Um, it, it creates that kind of, that kind of diversity. Um, back to the idea of wealth then, because some are rich and some are poor, yet we all give to each other and have love for one another, and we are all one in Christ. Um, I think this is the vision for church that, that you see in the Bible. It's messy, it's not perfect, this is the vision, though, for it. And the only way to have that type of unity is to not centralize minor things. It's the only way to do it. Um, and we all want to. I do. Uh, we all want to do that sometimes. The Bible's pushing constantly back on that, saying some of you are fasting, some of you are not. Some Christian, some Christian traditions still keep the Sabbath. Most, like us, don't because we believe Jesus fulfilled it. Um, it. It goes on and on and on. And it's beautiful. I mean, it's beautiful. It should be. Um, it can be pretty offensive, too, for some that think some, that their minor petty agenda out here uh, is, is ultimate. Like, if you think that, like your political persuasion, you know, your exact form of Christian spirituality, how it precisely looks every day, like, like that's the center and not Jesus, then it's going to make you condescend other Christians, right? You're not going to love people because you think you're better than them. So, okay, this has been a huge unintended bunny trail, but let me go back and just say to the wealthy, um, or to all of you, but this is why I think, like, you hold up a passage like this, and I think on one level, the wealthy among us, we, we need, the wealthy need exhortation on one level to be generous and shares of their stuff, but also need a Christ who fulfills this idea. Uh, because what happens like when you fail? Like whenever you read passages like this, you should also ask, well, it's saying to be less stingy with my stuff, but what happens when I don't do that? Does God not love me anymore? Does he hate me? Is he disappointed with me? Does he just tolerate me? And I think what, what the benefits you get to rightly reading the Bible and seeing that Jesus is the true rich man here is you get not just an imperative and 
a motivational exhortation, you also get a Jesus who surpasses you in it. You get a Jesus who kept the idea more than you ever will. And that's good. So you're getting motivation, but also an invitation to sit down, close your mouth, fold your hands, and stare at the cross. And don't do anything at all. Isn't that just great Christian theology? Like, be motivated to be generous, but stop it at the same time. That's not the center. Don't let your generosity supplant God's generosity to you, in other words. Don't let his good works done to you uh, be replaced by your good works done for the world. People do this all the time. You know, some of you might be in that place now. You know somebody. I personally know people right now who are wandering aimlessly down that slippery slope away from Christ. It's super sad to see. Happens all the time. Don't let your good works, even done in the name of Christ, your good works replace God's work done for you. Uh, there is a better thing there, right? There's a sun and a moon. There's a better and a secondary. Don't do this with those two things. Do this. God's more important, and Christ is more important, and his gospel is, is, is more important than anything we will ever do, and, any, and certainly uh, any way we, we will attempt to keep these unkeepable passages. This is an unkeepable ideal perfectly, right? It's unkeepable. Uh, and yet, in the spirit, it kind of is for the sake of telling his story. Okay. A couple of words here. He wraps up in, in 20 and 21. He says uh, to Timothy, oh, Timothy, you can kind of feel the emotion there in a sense, like he loves this guy. Um, he really wants him to hear this. Guard the deposit entrusted to you. The deposit, as I said before, is the gospel, the good news of Jesus' death and resurrection. And he says here to Timothy, a pastor, on one level, if you're a Christian, you could say this is for all of us. In one level, it's not for all of you. Um, Paul's not saying this here to every Christian, right? Saying this to Timothy, a pastor. Uh, this is a pastor's job. To guard with an iron fist the gospel. And that doesn't mean that God needs our protection, because he obviously doesn't, but it does mean that the gospel will be threatened by people inside and outside of the church. Uh, it's happened a lot here. Every church has probably seen this, where the gospel is almost injected with a type of um, self-righteous steroid, like we want more. And... Um, and, and a pastor's job is to ensure that doesn't happen. A pastor's job is to protect the church's doctrine from change and additions. He says here, avoid the irreverent babble uh, and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. That, that probably just means he's uh, saying that the false teaching circulating in the church was called this higher knowledge for people. Um, so it's kind of a broad term. But by this he means avoid the false teaching that is circulating, that might be considered pseudo-Christian, that might name drop Jesus, but also add to him and not rest in him, wanting more than grace alone. Kind of reminded me, um, for the two or three of you in the room who are Lord of the Rings fans like me, um, it reminded me of when, when Gandalf talks about how the dwarves got too greedy and dug too deep. And they, they awoke an evil through it and ultimately lost their lives. Uh, and, and I think... Christians can do that too. They can get too greedy with theology thinking they're smarter than God. They can dig past 
what he has revealed and start to dig deeper, thinking there's more to know, more to apply, a higher level of Christian spirituality uh, that only the strong get to, and they are the strong. Uh, and they become, pr- surprise, surprise, right? They become prideful in, the, in that newfound knowledge, bragging about how much more they now know than other lesser Christians who just know the shallow, simple gospel. Um, and, and really, all around, not realizing that they're digging themselves into a hole that Jesus died to bring them out of. Because we're saved by grace. Because we're saved by grace and not by our works. We're saved by Jesus going deep into the grave for us, not by us needing to go down, you know, deeper to uncover the mysteries of the faith. We're, we're saved from babbling to a place where we can just rest and close our mouths and not have to self-justify anymore or make ourselves look prettier to God or other people because we know we're loved. Um, that's not to say there's not more to know, right? I mean, if, you, if you're a student of theology, you know that it's a lifelong endeavor. And um, I like to say that uh, theology is both simple and complex because God is simple and complex, right? Like God is transcendent, he, or he's uh, unapproachable, we can't see him. So theology is going to be very difficult, right? And almost unminable for all its gold. And yet it's very simple because he's chosen to be known. Um, so there is, there is a depth to it that is unminable, but there's also this idea within Christian theology that God has made everything known through his son. He's answered all questions. Um, to, to delve too deep greedily in theology um, usually has bad consequences to it. Uh, but to know you're loved and to rest in the sufficiency of God saying, my son is enough for you, um, is much, much better. And, and this is what I think, the, the letter is ending with, with things like, basically calling out not just false teachers, but the act of wanting higher knowledge, um, theological knowledge, by the way. Uh, but the gospel is like a deposit. It's something God deposited into the world through his son. It's not to be trifled with or watered down or injected with more of you. If I, if I were to kind of put it one way, I would just say that. Like, uh, pastors are called to do this and, protect, and to kind of be flag bearers for this effort and idea. But for all of, all of you who are Christians, the gospel, the simple gospel is not to be trifled with or watered down or injected with more of you. Injected with a steroid of more of your works. But it is to be kept pure. And, and a pastor's job is to do this, um, even though it will mean a lot of pushback, a lot of criticism, um, usually by conservatives, uh, who, um, liberals too, but conservatives who think they're too conservative for God and who think there's more. And um, it's just not true. Like, think like the Pharisees. Um, Jesus bumped, bumped heads, man, with religious conservative people, way more, I'd say, than, than liberals, which is f- fascinating for so many reasons. I wish I had a second sermon to give, but I don't. But, I, but it's the fact that he clashed with really good people, clashed with conservative religious people, um, should say a lot about what the true gospel is, uh, right? It's, it threatens fundamentalism. It threatens, like, the, the works of our hands. It threatens the laws we think we've kept. It threatens the idea of digging deeper. It threatens condescension and comparison uh, issues. It... it um, it goes into all of that and more. And so, in fact, just so we like, we'll get the message, he signs off here in the last 
The last thing he says is, grace be with you, which if, is the gospel in a nutshell. If you know Paul, you know he signs off all of his letters with this, some version of the statement. He ends all of his 13 letters of the New Testament this way. I think Romans, he says it like a chapter earlier, but still counts. But basically, like the last words of every, every one of his 13 letters ends with a grace be with you or a wish of grace uh, in the church. Uh, and and great, grace can be hard to define. Let me tell you what it means. Uh, grace is one way, unconditional love to us from God through Jesus' shed blood. One way, unconditional love to us from God through Jesus' poverty or his shed blood. And remember these letters, too, uh, are to be studied not simply in a historical critical way, like we might read and study Alexander the Great's diary or a letter he wrote to one of his sons. Um, We don't read the Bible that way, or at least just that way. We read it spiritually. Uh, your, Your concern and my concern ultimately in this letter should not be what is Paul saying to Timothy, but what is God saying to us. We read it, to borrow language from 2 Corinthians 3, we read it as though it's a letter from God to us penned with the blood of Jesus and with the spirit of God himself and love. And so if that's true, then this last grace be with you is ultimately God's wish for us. And so like if you ever want to know like what God's will is for your life, what he really wants for you, um, don't skip this. Like don't skip it by just thinking it was one historical Christian man's contextual words for one pastor. Like, you'll, it'll never mean anything to you if you think that, and you shouldn't anyway. But instead, it's God's word to us. He wants us to be close to his grace. He wishes that his grace will be with us. He, he intends it. He says things like, my grace is sufficient for you. My grace strengthen you. And my grace to forgive you and wash you, and make you new. And about this grace, uh, the letter of 1 Timothy essentially says to us, if you were to summarize it this way, pastors, guard it and preach it. Church, celebrate it, embody it, and share it. And the yet to be saved, receive it. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this passage, uh, for this whole book. Uh, We thank you... um, for the exhortation to all of us with stuff in this life, whether we're rich or not, we have things that can be shared as you've shared your bloody body with us on that cross. And we pray for specific context this week, things that maybe we'll be surprised by on Tuesday or Wednesday or Thursday this week, ways we can actually do that, whether it's a a tangible thing or an intangible thing for someone else at our church. Um, Help us. And thank you for the many times this has happened here at our church, but We do pray for more of that as you would will it and that we would be known for being a church of love and uh, diversity and freedom Uh, and within that, within the confines of that, uh, a gospel centrality that just looks for ways uh, to kind of outdo one another in showing love and, um, and the gospel of generosity itself being the crucifixion. Uh, But thank you, God, with that said, thank you especially that you are the true rich man Uh, who sent your son into the world to be that rich man, uh, to ultimately be the wealthiest of all, to become the poorest of all. Like he is the bookends. There's no one wealthier than God, and there's no one more impoverished than the man on the cross. And because you gave us the bookends, 
We can stop striving to do it perfectly or to be the standard or to jump over the bar because no one will be more rich and no one will give more away than Christ. And so we can stop trying to compete and compare and to match that perfectly and instead sit down and let it be and um, let the wealth of Jesus be enough and let the sharing of Christ be enough and let the generosity of God, who is the most generous being in the universe, praise be to God, be enough. I pray this in your name. Amen.